And so, Lord God, by the power of your Spirit, invade every heart. Take all that has come forth in this service until now to glorify you and magnify you, to rivet our hearts to the truth of your word. Bless the one who's going to come. Our brother Travis, honor his preparation and use him, strengthen him. Thank you for this place of truth and may we all be changed because of this worship experience today. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hey, good morning. I'm so glad that you're here as we kick off this new series on, on what it means to be happy. Today, we're going to dive into a series on the Beatitudes. You know, I'm discovering more and more these days, it seems it's hard to find someone who's genuinely happy. And yet the Lord's given us this great salvation that brings joy into our lives and purpose. You know, I, I think it's this. So many of us have come to believe that happiness is actually found in pursuing happiness. Jesus says that it's actually found in pursuing something else. And I would say that it's ultimately found in pursuing Him. So we're going to enter into this series on the Beatitudes. And today, Travis Cook is going to bring the message. I'm so excited that you're going to hear from this gifted teacher, preacher, as he talks about this first of the Beatitudes, what it means to be poor in spirit. And so uh, as we dive into this series, I hope that you'll invite friends to come. This is so needed and it's going to be a powerful time. I hope you'll invite others to come and not miss a week as we talk about what it means to be happy. Thanks, Jeff. So I'm going to give you a, a description of a man that many of you will recognize. And you'll know him as a destroyer of homes, more evil than Hitler and Stalin combined. He's a terrible, terrible man. I give you the face of evil. <laughs> if you don't know who that is, that's Mr. Monopoly from the board game Monopoly. And I promise you, I'm not on a quest to destroy every childhood board game that you ever had. Uh, but if you ever grew up playing Monopoly, you know the rules of the game. The rules are you try and buy property that you land on. Uh, so that you can control all the, the certain colors of property, and then you can eventually drive all of your family and friends out of business. I don't know very many people who have actually completed a game of Monopoly because everybody just gets really angry at each other. I think I finished one game in my entire life. But the rules of the game are to have more power, more control, more influence than everybody else. That's what you, that's what you want to do. That's the, the goal of the game, and, and, and that's great. Monopoly is a fine game. I'm not going to dog it like I did, a, did Clue a couple weeks back. But the problem becomes when we take the principles of Monopoly and we export them into our everyday life, and we think that the, in order to be happy, in order to win the game, I need to have more power, more influence, and more control than everybody else. And so we systematically go about pushing our agenda, pushing our ideas, pushing what we want, and running over everybody else. And we think that's the key to happiness, uh, having all the toys or whatever expression that you might like to do. As Jeff said, we're, we're starting a new series on being happy, and it's great that we're using the Beatitudes to do this. One, it makes sense biblically, but it also makes sense in the flow of our sermon series. We just finished talking about the Ten Commandments, and here comes Jesus with the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, which was a, a second sort of rehash of the Ten Commandments in some way, shape, or form. So it's really kind of a neat connection uh, that we have there. And so as we look at what it means to be happy, I want you to think about the way that you pursue it. 
and that the way society tells you to pursue happiness. And everybody thinks that finding happiness is, is sort of an end in itself. And Jesus kind of turns that on its head and shows that it's in it pursuing other things that we can actually find happiness. So one of the things that Jesus says as we start our Beatitudes, we're starting in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, and it'll be a very uh, familiar passage. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it's this idea of being poor, this idea of being needy, that Jesus is saying, actually, you can find happiness in being needy. It's the opposite of what monopoly teaches us. Monopoly tells us power, control, influence, having things is actually not having any needs at all is the way to happiness. And Jesus comes along and says, no, no, it's actually having a need that I can find happiness. So what I want us to do today is we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, but we're probably going to bounce around a little bit as we did with the Ten Commandments. And we're going to look at who we are, who we want to be, and how we can get there. So who we are is we all experience powerlessness. We all experience powerlessness. Look at Matthew chapter 5 verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, we're very early in Matthew's gospel, but Jesus has already done a lot of work, and he's already gained quite a following. At the end of Matthew chapter 4, Jesus has preached, he's taught, He's cast out demons, he's done a lot of healings, and he has quite a following in the region of Galilee where he grew up. And so when he's, when he, he's get, got, all, got all these followers together, he's going to bring them up on the side of a mountain, just like Moses brought Israel up to the side of a mountain. And just like Moses gave a commandment, gave the commandments, gave what God wants, Jesus is also going to talk about what it means to follow him, what it is that God wants, and what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. And he starts with these statements of blessed blessed, blessed. Now, I don't usually pick on uh, Bible translations. One, because I want you to have confidence in the translation that you have, and two, there's a lot of scholars who do a lot more hard work than I do and know the Bible better than I do that have helped translate your Bible. So, you can trust your scriptures. With that being said, blessed is probably not the best way to translate the Greek word there, which is makarios. The reason why we translate it blessed is because when we translated the Greek into Latin, the Latin word we chose back in the day kind of gave this connotation of blessed and happy. And so we've kind of continued on the tradition, and so when people have done uh, new translations, they've stuck with blessed because if you open your Bible and you go to read the Beatitudes and it says something other than blessed, you're kind of like, wait a minute, what sort of newfangled thing is this? We're all afraid of change. It's okay to admit it. It's fine. But the word you should probably use there is happy. The word makarios means happy or flourishing or even fortunate or lucky. So when we use the word blessed, we think of a relationship between God or a deity and a person. And a person is the recipient of blessing. That's not the idea of makarios. The idea of makarios introduces a third party into the equation. It's not God the blesser. It's not the person being blessed. It's this third party who's looking in at that relationship and being like, Man, that guy's got it good. God, that guy's lucky. He gets all the breaks. How fortunate is he? What a good life he or she has. That's makarios. It's a third-party perspective. And Jesus is saying, as we read Matthew 5, verse 3, blessed or happy, and I'll probably read it happy from here on out, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs are the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying that happy people have a need. Happy people have a want. Happy people are impoverished. Happy people are impoverished. Now, you might sit here and look around at our church, 
And you might look around at where our church is located in the city and in the country and think to yourself, man, must not be a lot of happy people around here because we're not impoverished. We don't experience poverty on the whole, most of us. We live in a very wealthy part of the country. And what that does is that shows how small of a definition of poverty we have. Because poverty is something larger than an economic issue. Poverty is greater than that, and that is why Jesus uses the expression poor in spirit. Scripture has a more robust understanding of poverty than we do. Turn with me to Isaiah 10, verse 1. We're going to go back to Matthew 5, so keep your finger there. Isaiah 10 And the Sermon on the Mount has a lot of parallels with Isaiah, so this will probably be familiar. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. Isaiah is talking about the widows and the orphans, people who were impoverished, but not only impoverished economically, but they were powerless to change their situation. They couldn't affect their status. They were the most overlooked and the most easily taken advantage of group of people in the ancient world, widows and orphans. And to take advantage of them was seen as a a heinous sin. And so poverty is something more than an economic situation. It's a sense of powerlessness. It's a lack of control. That's what poverty is. And so when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's tapping into this sort of grander understanding of what it means to be poor. Luke, in his gospel, actually just says, blessed are the poor. And people struggle with that, but that's because Luke's not helping you out with the in spirit part. But he also means a greater understanding of poverty. Because when you're powerless, if you've ever been in a situation where you're completely helpless, where you're out of control, life events are kind of running you over, It does something to you spiritually. It affects you deep down, and it's frustrating, and it's upsetting. It sends people into depression. There's a reason why people struggle with things like post-traumatic stress disorder, because traumatic stress is something that's induced often in a sense of feeling powerless. It's powerlessness, because the feeling of being out of control, not being able to change your circumstances, affects you to your core. Even sociologists and philanthropists identify poverty as something greater than just economic poverty. When I was uh, first started here at Park Cities, I went to Guatemala and worked at the Potter's House in June of 2013, took some of our singles down there, and every single lunch that we had after we would work, we'd come in, and they would walk us through one of the types of poverty that they sort of identified. It's called the eight forms of poverty, and I'm going to list them here on the screen for you. One of the first ones is economic, which we know what that is, not having uh, the economic resources to change your situation. Intellectual poverty, this doesn't mean that you're stupid. It means that you don't have access to education, which can then advance your social status, the, the affects the situation that you're in. Spiritual poverty. Spiritual poverty can look like something like, God doesn't love me, I've done too many bad things, God hates me, that's spiritual poverty. Poverty of affection, not knowing how to give love or receive love. Maybe you grew up in a home that didn't know how to say, I love you, didn't use those words, and in fact, love often looked like avoiding getting hit that day. That meant somebody loved you. That is poverty of affection. Poverty of the will means we are all prone to addiction, 
And it means that they lack the resources and the ability to break addictions in their life. When you, when you don't have access to objects to kind of numb the pain of life, as we often do, those of us that have money, you turn to other things like substance abuse. It's a poverty of the will. Physical poverty, so perhaps a disability. Poverty of a support network. So you may have all the cards except for one. You don't have anybody helping you, and so you can't change your situation. Lastly, poverty of civic involvement, which is the belief that it doesn't matter what I do, how I vote, who's in office, it doesn't matter. Things are just going to stay the same, and I'm going to continue. Our country is going to continue being in the place that it's in. Mother Teresa said this, who worked with the most economically disadvantaged people in the world. She said, loneliness and the feeling of being unwanted is the most terrible poverty. And when we expand this definition of poverty to not just be about money, to be about dollar signs, but to be about something else that's greater, we realize that all of us experience poverty in some way, shape, or form. And I don't say that to disregard those that experience economic poverty and the poorest of the poor. That's not what I'm talking about. But we need to recognize that in many cases, there's probably not much difference between us and them, except for the amount of money that we have in, a bank, in our bank account and the way we got started in life with maybe a family that set us up for success. It's not that much difference between us and them. Poverty, being poor in spirit, is powerlessness. And all of us at some point have experienced a feeling of helplessness. No matter what our wealth is, no matter what our power, no matter what our influence is. You can go to the doctor. And you can have the best health care in the world, the best health insurance. You've kept yourself physically fit. You've worked out. You eat right. You don't eat red meat. And you go to the doctor and your doctor says, you have high blood pressure. Wait, what? I've done everything right. Yeah. You did everything right, but guess what? There's things outside of your control. That's powerlessness. Maybe it's worse than high blood pressure. Maybe you're a perfect driver and you're driving down the road. You, you even use your turn signal when there's nobody else. You know that person that's like there's nobody else on the road, but you still put on your turn signal to change lanes because it's just courteous. I do that. That's me. You're driving through an intersection. It's green. You know it's green, and you're cruising along doing a, a, a cordial 35, and somebody just plows right into you. They ran a red light. It's doing everything right. That's keeping everything under control. Yeah, well, somebody else wasn't. Somebody else wasn't. Your kids. One might be really rebellious, and you're like, I raised all of them the exact same way. Why is it no matter what I do with this one child, he or she won't stop being disobedient? And there's this sense of powerlessness of being at the end of your rope. If you're a single adult, you think to yourself, why am I not married yet? God, I'm doing everything right. I'm saving myself for marriage. I'm saving myself for marriage. Why? It's powerlessness. That's a feeling of powerlessness. There's a feeling of poverty there, a need. I have a need. Hopefully, when you come to church every single Sunday, you're told that you're impoverished. Because we all need to hear every single week that there's nothing we can do outside of Jesus Christ to earn God's love. There's nothing you can do to earn that. That's poverty. That's a spiritual poverty that every single human being in the world experiences, hopefully, so that they will then come to Christ and recognize they need him. Probably experience poverty in more ways than you know. In fact, if we're honest with ourselves, we're probably not in as much control as we think. We probably don't have much, as much power as we think. And we hate it. We hate not being in control. We loathe it. It's why we buy things. We buy a lot of things to try and cover over, to paper over the real poverty that we experience. 
If I'm comfortable, if I've got something to distract myself, I don't have to think about the fact that deeply inside I'm wounded. And so we worry. We get anxious. In fact, if you turn over and you keep reading in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about being anxious, being worried about what you're going to wear, what you're going to eat. And he tells us in verse 31 of chapter 6, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. There's that kingdom of heaven again, the kingdom of God. We're poor people. And Jesus says something about that. In fact, some of you might be sitting there being like, wait, Travis, I've been told my whole life that poverty is something else. And you're saying now, you're saying not only is, is, am I, do I experience poverty, but I should seek after it. Like poverty is something that, that can be good. Experiencing a need, having a need, being out of control can be good. No, I'm not telling you that. Jesus is telling you that. In fact, he's telling us this, there is happiness that can be found in relying on other people. There's happiness in relying on other people. If you go down the street and you ask people, what is happiness? You're going to get a lot of different answers. I didn't have to do that because of a wonderful machine called Google, so I could just type that in. And so I got some responses. One of them was, and this is the most popular one, and I agree with it, happiness is eating what you want and not gaining weight. It's the number one most popular answer. I feel like I'm on Family Feud right now. Happiness is getting warm affections from a pet. I don't, I'm not a pet person. I have a rabbit. One of the biggest mistakes of my life. I've got a rabbit, and uh, I don't really get excited about him coming up and kissing me. He doesn't really do that anyway. But some of you do. Some of you are going to go home today, and you're going to get a kiss from your dog, and you're going to love it. That's great. Great for you. That's happiness, I guess. Happiness is not caring what other people think about you. So for right now, I'm happy because I don't care if you think that I don't like dogs. I do. I like dogs. It's okay. Y'all just like think really lowly of me now. Now I'm worried. When we ponder the question of happiness, people aren't just talking about a momentary experience. They're talking about like a condition of life, an environmental factor. They want some people, other people to look into their life and be like, man, they've got it good. We want the good life. That's what happiness is. We're seeking after the good life. That's another great way to understand the word makarios. The good life is for those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It's a really great way. So when Jesus is giving this Sermon on the Mount, and this is probably not the only time he gave it. Jesus traveled a lot, so he probably gave this sermon a lot. So there's, a, there's something happening. There's a cultural moment that's going on. You have Second Temple Judaism, which is the, the first temple was burned down. This is the second temple during Jesus' day. And they have a, a philosophy, a set of ethics. Well, during this time, in between the two temples, the Greeks and the Romans showed up, and Jerusalem and uh, Judaism started interacting a lot with Greco-Roman philosophy. And so even if you have a group like the Pharisees who wouldn't have subscribed to anything in Greek philosophy you still have their philosophy, their theology being shaped by philosophy because when you have to create counter-arguments to something, it shapes what you think, okay? So Jesus is talking at sort of this intersection of philosophy, and Greco-Roman philosophy, one of their big questions was, what makes a person happy? Like, how can the average person find happiness? 
And so this creates a bunch of different schools of thought. On one end of the spectrum, you have the hedonists. And the hedonists would have said, do whatever feels good. That's what happiness is. On the other end of the spectrum, you have a group called the Stoics. And the Stoics would have said, do whatever doesn't make you feel good, and that will make you happy. And then you have all this assorted other group sort of in the middle. The chief figure in all of this is probably a name you're familiar with, I hope, is Aristotle. And Aristotle spent a lot of his time asking this question. What makes a man happy? In fact, he said this, happiness depends on ourselves. Happiness depends on ourselves. And so he believed that happiness, the way to find happiness, was sort of moderation. It's what's called the mean. So not too much of one thing, not too much of another. So Aristotle would have told you, it's okay to drink, but don't get drunk. But it's also not okay to completely abstain from alcohol because eh, that's not happiness either. It's okay to eat, but don't eat to gluttony, but also don't starve yourself. Find a middle ground. And if we're honest with ourselves, our ethics, our evaluation of happiness is probably more dominated by Aristotle than it is by Jesus Christ. We think happiness depends upon ourselves. I'm in charge of my own happiness, right? That's the Invictus poem. I'm the captain of my own vessel. And happiness is probably in leading a balanced life. I don't know how much of Jesus' words you've read, but go back and read it. And think about how many times he pushes you to be balanced. It's not often. In fact, Jesus doesn't want you to live a balanced life. He wants you to live a life sold out, worshiping and following him. And so that's why he says in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Dive into your poverty. Express your need. Embrace your need. That's not a moderated statement. That's uh, That's an extreme And Jesus doesn't just uh, uh, tell us to do this and not do it himself. In fact, Jesus does this with his life. We're going to look at some examples. First, we're going to talk about the incarnation. In Philippians 2, verse 1, I'm not going to read it for the sake of time, but in Philippians 2, verse 1 through 11, Paul gives us a very good description of what Jesus does when the Son of God puts on flesh and he comes to earth. And he talks about how it's a humble expression, how, how he didn't consider equality with God, which means the trappings, the, the riches of being God, something to be grasped. So he put on flesh and he comes to earth. And God honors this by giving him victory over sin, death, and evil. Now, Jesus didn't show up on earth with like a military vest on and no shirt underneath, ripped like Dwayne the Rock Johnson with an M16 in one hand and Ten Commandments in the other, and being like, I'm going to clean out the temple, everybody. That's not how Jesus shows up. How does Jesus show up? We had like 12 of them down here as a baby. Is there anything more dependent on other people than a human baby? And not just, Jesus didn't just show up as a baby and then go live in a palace for 30 years, protected by guards. He was born to an unwed teenage mother and a carpenter from a a, a podunk town in in a podunk place, completely vulnerable. And Jesus is standing here 30 years later and saying to you, blessed are those who have needs. Happy are those who have needs. And I know this because I experienced it. I've relied on other people. He doesn't just stop there. Look at Luke chapter 8, verse 1. Even in his ministry, he relied on other people. Verse 1, soon afterward he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. So here's a guy who's the son of God, 
who can make five loaves and two fish turn into a golden corral buffet. He can turn water into wine, and when they need money, he can tell one of his disciples, just reach in that fish's mouth and pull out two coins and pay this tax so we can get going. And what does he do instead? He lets women who were not primary members of society at that time, he gives them a place of power, a place of influence, a place of control, and he divests himself of some of the power and authority in his life, and he gives it to women, and they bankroll his ministry, even though he really doesn't need them to. And that shows us that oftentimes there's something special about empowering other people, even when you don't need to. You may be able to take care of it yourself, but allowing someone else to do it for you, delegating that to somebody else, happy is that person, Jesus would say. Then there's the resurrection. The resurrection. The Bible talks a lot about the resurrection, which is good. But did you know that that's the greatest miracle in all of Scripture? The greatest miracle of all of Scripture, and Jesus isn't the one that did it. It was done for him. Scripture is very clear. Acts 2.24, Peter teaches that God the Father raised him to life. That's a passive action on Jesus' part. He is laying there dead, and God the Father, through the Spirit, works in him and on him to raise him back to life. When Jesus talks about it in Matthew 17, 9, verse 23, and Matthew 20, 19, he says the Son of Man will be raised to life. That's a passive expression. Romans 10, 9, Galatians 1, 1, Hebrews eleven nineteen, 19, all agree that Jesus was dependent upon God the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit to come back to life. I think many of us look at the cross and we think about Jesus climbing up the, up the road to Golgotha and we think to ourselves, Yeah, I mean, that was hard, and that would have been awful to experience, but he knew he was going to get resurrected. He knew he had the power to bring himself back to life, and that's not what Scripture teaches. Jesus is going to the cross, dying, and his future is completely out of his hands. He is trusting in God 110% to do what the Father promised, which is bring him back to life. Jesus' greatest act was one of dependence, full dependence. In fact, Jesus tells us, I don't do what I want. I do the will of God, the Father. So we're on this pursuit of happiness. We're we're trying to get our way through life, trying to be as happy as we can. And Jesus has told us that it's in poverty that we can have a happy life. And having a need and then in relying on other people to meet that need, we can find makarios, we can flourish, we can be happy, we can have the good life. So what do we do? We need to give power to other people. Give power to other people. There's a phrase in verse 3 that I haven't talked about much. And it's the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's a complicated term because it's an already and not yet term. What does it mean to have the kingdom of heaven? Well, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that means if you trusted in him for your salvation, for God to forgive you of your sins is by Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, you have the kingdom of God living inside of you. So Jesus Christ has come to earth in his first incarnation, in his first uh, uh, appearance, and he's set up the kingdom of God. The king is present, but then he leaves and he sets up the kingdom in each of our hearts as we believe. And so as you subscribe more and more to the rule and reign of Jesus Christ in your life, the kingdom is advancing in your life. And so everything you touch becomes more and more like the kingdom, the more and more you become like Christ. But it's a not yet, it's it's a future reality because we're waiting for all the negative things that won't be a part of the kingdom to go away when Christ returns and sets up the new heaven and the new earth. So it's an already and a not yet. It's a future hope, but it's an already reality. And that's difficult for us to get our head around because we're kind of black and white. 
But that's the truth of what's going on. So your job as a believer is to grow more and more into the image of Christ so that every part of your world that you touch becomes more and more like the kingdom. It looks more like the kingdom of heaven than the kingdom of earth. That's our job. That's why we do missions. That's why we do marriage core. That's why we do all that we do is because we want to see the kingdom of God on earth. Now, we're not bringing in the kingdom. Jesus Christ is doing that. But we want to bring change to our world. So when you believe that happy are people who have needs and rely on other people, not because it's not bad, but because it's actually a better way of life, you'll begin to empower other people in your life. You can give up power, prestige, control. Rather than trying to get more spaces on the Monopoly board, you're giving away spaces on the Monopoly board. You realize that ultimately winning the game isn't pushing everybody else out of business, but it's making sure everybody else has what they need to do the business of living life to the fullest, of living makarios. So what are some examples of this? Well, the first that you need to realize is that you can't do this by yourself. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this is not natural stuff. I don't do this either. I'm selfish. I like things my way. I like to be in control. Control freak might be a little bit of an extreme uh, sort of evaluation. Maybe control enthusiast is something that I've heard before. You have to rely on the Holy Spirit in order for this to happen. It's called the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of God as Travis understands it and wants it to look where he's the center of it. Any kingdom that I'm going to set up is going to be the one where I'm at the center of it, unless the Holy Spirit is leading. So what does this look like? One, we need to give control to God. Now, for some of you, this might be the first step for you. Giving control to God, giving power and authority to God. So some of you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ because you think you can earn God's favor through your own works. That is the opposite of being poor in spirit. That's being rich in spirit. That's saying, I can do everything on my own. And Jesus is saying, look, that's, the kingdom of God's not for you because the kingdom of God is full of needy people. And if you don't recognize your need, It's not that you're not welcome, it's that you're not going to fit in with those of us who have expressed our need. And so maybe the first step for you admitting your need today is recognizing that you need Jesus Christ to save you from your sins so that you can have a relationship with God. He died so that you might live. You can't keep these commands on your own strength. Now when you come to Christ, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you're given this power And the more and more we're dependent on God, the more and more we can live out these values. But you can't do it in your own power and strength. So we often think as Baptists, I give control of my life to God one time when I walk an aisle or I get saved, I ask Jesus into my heart, and then the rest of it is up to me. That is not okay. That is not right thinking. That's not what the Bible teaches. We give control of our life to God every single day, every single moment. What's What's the verse? I need thee every hour. I need thee, that might be a little generous. How about every moment I need thee? So we give control to God. We also give power to other people. You're surrounded every day by people who don't have the power and influence to affect their circumstances like you and I do. So here's some examples. One, you can empower your spouse. Empower your spouse. This is exactly what Marriage Corps is about because one of the exercises they do in Marriage Corps is you draw a circle around yourself, imaginary I think, and you say, I can't control anything outside of this circle. I can only control myself. Well, if you got into marriage in order to be in control, you've been horribly misled. 
Marriage is about giving up control. It's about giving up power. It's about sharing power with another person. That's what marriage is about. It's about empowering your spouse to go and be the things that he or she needs to be. That's what Ephesians 5 is about. That's what womanly submission is like in Ephesians 5. It's empowering your husband to lead. And for guys, empowering your wife through love and self-sacrifice as Christ did for the church, that's what that verse is about. So true story from my own personal life is my wife is pursuing a PhD at Dallas Seminary. And I don't know how much you know about me, but one of the things I value about myself is I want people to see me as an intellectual as a theologian, and someone who is bright. Now, it's great if you do, thank you. (laughs) But it's really difficult for me when my wife first said, I think I'm going to go after a PhD. There was a catch in my spirit, and my pride said, you know what, it's going to be really hard to hear everybody welcome Dr. and Mr. Cook, (laughs) rather than Dr. and Mrs. Cook. And y'all, I know how that sounds. It sounds misogynistic. And you know what it is? It is. It totally is. Because I'm still growing in that area. And as the Holy Spirit worked on me, and it didn't take long. It took about a day for me to be like, yeah, baby, go do this. But that's the kind of things we need to do. We need to empower our spouse to be everything that God has created them to be, even if that means consequences for ourselves. Even if that means my life gets harder. Harder. You need to empower your friends. You got people all around you who love you, but they can't read your mind. And so they don't know what's going on in your life. So you need to use this and tell people what's going on. Some of you are going to go home today and you're not going to talk to another soul after church today. And you're going to be lonely, but you're going to feel like it's pathetic that you might have to call somebody. That's not pathetic. That's being makarios. That's being happy. That's the kingdom of heaven is people being together. Some of you are connect group leaders. And you think that nobody can teach your connect group like you teach your connect group. And so you've never thought it important to maybe train somebody else to do your job. There's a word for that, and I hesitate to use it, but I'm going to use it. It's called arrogance. Train up somebody to do your job after you because you're not always going to be there. It's hard. I love teaching my connect group. I think I do a good job with it. But I do a better job when I let other people do it. Give other people power. And then lastly, empower the powerless. What are you doing in your businesses to empower those who maybe are minorities? People that aren't readily thought about, people that are overlooked. How are you giving them leadership roles? When you're forming committees or you're on a board for uh, a, a nonprofit organization, are you thinking about people who might look differently than you? Empower other people. One of the biggest problems we have at our church as far as serving goes, we're a great serving church. But we like it when we can just come here and serve rather than going to places where people have need. Let's go over there and empower them to lead us in their communities. Because we don't just need to come in and tell them what to do. We need to go and work side by side and let them tell us what to do. Because that's makarios. That's happiness. It's having a need and encouraging, empowering other people to meet it, whether that is God himself or it's other people, brothers and sisters in Christ. So Monopoly is a great game. It really is. It's a terrible way to live your life. Terrible way. So stop playing the game and go be blessed. Be happy by recognizing the fact that you have needs. Stop living a lie. You have needs. Rely on other people and empower them to serve you. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, you have blessed us with the inability to be an island. You have blessed us with the inability to 
function well on our own, and so we are connected and interdependent, and even as we are the body of Christ, we are dependent on one another and dependent upon you for everything that we have. And so, Lord Jesus, we cry out to you now. We pray that, one, you would show us through the power of your Holy Spirit what our need is, and pray that you would empower us to do something about it today. Maybe it's to get baptized. Maybe you've been pressing on our heart that we need to get baptized, and and maybe the opportunity is at the outdoor baptism coming up next month. Or maybe it's to join this church, or maybe it's to do something uh, to to say I'm sorry to, to my spouse, to say I'm sorry to a friend, to ask for help. Whatever it might be, Lord, I pray that through your Spirit, you would give us that power and strength, and we trust you with it because you're a good God. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Travis, thank you for your leadership. And now, as we close the service in response and reflection,